House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Joining us on the line, we have the one and only Robert Rand talking about his Menendez Murders book. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Alan. I'd like to know how you got so involved in this. Well, in August of 1989, um, I was uh, a freelance writer working for the Sunday Magazine and the Miami Herald, uh, Tropic Magazine, and I had an assignment to go out to Las Vegas and uh, research and report a story about the home video business. Uh, in the 1980s, the home video business was taking off. Uh, home video actually began in the late 70s, uh, and it was all porn. But uh, by the early 80s, the mainstream studios said, wait a minute, <laughs> we can release our movies and, ha- and create a whole new income stream, and it became a an enormous income stream for the studios. And so it, by the late 80s, uh, there was an annual trade show called the Video Software Dealers uh, Convention in Vegas. And uh, a third of the convention was still porn, but two-thirds of the convention was the mainstream studios. And they would bring their, you know, their biggest stars, uh, Sylvester Stallone, uh, Julia Roberts. They would throw parties, elaborate parties. I mean, it, it was a four-day blowout. Uh, and mom and pop retailers, you know, who were who were a significant uh, percentage of the business back then, would come to Vegas, and so along with uh, you know Blockbuster, uh, make it a Blockbuster night. So um, in the 1980s, uh, all the ma- major studios uh, quickly opened up home video divisions, and uh, eventually the independent studios did the same thing. Carol Cole Pictures was one of the uh, most successful independent studios in the 80s. They released the Rambo movies. They released a movie called Basic Instinct with Sharon Stone that many people are familiar with. So uh, in August of 89, uh, early August, I'm in Vegas, and I'm... You know, doing, you know, talking to all kinds of people in the home video business. And, uh, I had a friend who was editor of a trade magazine. He's taking me around and introducing me to people. And, um, I come back to Miami and 10 days later, I get a phone call at 10 in the morning on a Monday morning from my friend who says, um, you know, there, there's a high profile guy in the home video business. He and his wife were blown away last night in uh, Beverly Hills. And, um, Okay, that caught my attention, and he he was keeping American, which made it a potential interest to people in Miami. And uh, in the the uh, one general fact that a lot of people don't realize is there were seven months between the uh, killing of Jose and Kitty Menendez and the arrest of their sons, Lyle and Eric Menendez. And the um, in the first few days after uh, the deaths of Jose and Kitty. Uh, the Menendez murders were really only on the national media radar for maybe three or four days. Uh, in that first week, uh, the Wall Street Journal ran a front-page story, and the headline was, Hints of Mob Rub-Out. And the LA Times was also running stories about, uh, you know, they were quoting uh, unnamed sources in the LA County Sheriff's Office, saying, um, you know, these murders... Uh, you know, we, we believe that this was sometimes something related to organized crime. And there was a legitimate reason why people were speculating that, which was that the home video business, as I just mentioned a minute ago, the origins were in adult film. And a lot of those early home video people had uh, alleged connections to uh, the mafia. So um, Jose Menendez was hired by Caracol Pictures to... Uh, opened a home video division, and they uh, bought a company uh, called IVE and renamed it Live Entertainment. And uh, Menendez's assignment was to, uh, you know, create a successful uh, um, company out of IVE, which had been kind of a, a B-movie uh, distributor, and they were also they also had softcore porn. Um, so, and Menendez had a very um, violent. Uh, um, well, I shouldn't use the word violent. He had a very strong uh, disagreement with uh, a man named Noel Blue, who had been the owner and uh, CEO of IVE. And 
uh, when Menendez took over, they basically pushed No Bloom out, and there there was some serious animosity and um, you know a lot of legal uh, wrangling going on for a settlement, and so No Bloom was actually one of the early suspects uh, in the media. Now, not he was never a suspect in the Beverly Hills Police, but um, anyway, that's more information than you needed to know about how I got into the story. I was uh, I just spent a couple months researching the home video business, and all of a sudden the media is saying, you know, this lovely couple uh, is killed in Beverly Hills, and, you know, the media speculation, LA Times, Wall Street Journal, mainstream media, saying, uh, you know, it might be mob-related. And so I, you know, kind of dove into that, and um, within about 10 days I found out that Jose Menendez had a sister named Marta Cano who lived in West Palm Beach, Florida. In 1989, before the Internet or uh, cell phones, I got out the West Palm Beach phone book uh, in the newsroom at the Miami Herald. I found uh, Marta Cano's home number. She was listed. I called her up, um, you know, 5% to make a condolence call, 95% to hit on her for a story. She immediately invited me up to West Palm Beach, and we spent four hours uh Talking about the family history, about two. This is about two weeks after the murders, and um, the the family history was uh, the family started in Spain with nothing, became wealthy, lost everything, immigrated to Cuba uh, with nothing, uh, became wealthy. Castro came in, they lost everything again, and then the family came to the states with nothing, and uh, Jose Menendez became uh, head of Hertz head of RCA Records, and eventually, uh, after 20 years living in Princeton and working in New York, the family moved to California in uh, 1987, and uh, he became head of a home video company. So um, that is, so I, I, I was kind of in, uh, in on the ground floor of the story, literally, um, because I went back to Miami after I met with uh, Eric Alain Menendez's aunt, Marchicano, and I said to my editor at the Sunday Magazine, you know, look, we don't know anything about this murder investigation. The Beverly Hills police aren't talking. But I said, this family has a really interesting story. So why don't I do a biography about Jose Menendez? Rags to riches, uh, uh, Cuban-American uh, story ends, immigrants' dream story ends in this terrible tragedy. So my original assignment was to write a biography. As part of that reporting, I came out to California in October of 89, two months after the murders, five months before the brothers were arrested, and I spent three days with Eric and Lyle Menendez. And uh, the purpose of our interview was to talk about, uh, you know, their their father for my biography. And uh, they told me very loving, uh, caring stories about how much they loved their parents, how much they missed their parents, uh, and... Uh, um, so, I've been for a long time about how, no. how I get into the story, but that's it. Wow. No, that's, that's it. I was just, now, did, when you talked to uh, Eric and Lyle, um, and they were giving you loving stories, uh, did, did they tell you who they thought killed their parents? No, well, I, as, as I just said, my assignment was to write a biography about Jose Menendez. So I really wasn't trying to, you know, push them about uh, the investigation. But uh, at one time, uh, but, um, the first day uh, of the uh, of the formal interviews, um, Lyle Menendez, I was with both brothers, Lyle Menendez asked me to, uh, I pulled out a tape recorder and a notepad, and he asked me not to take notes or record them. He said, we want to just get to know you. And, in fact, about 15 minutes after meeting them, he said to me, we're thinking about writing a book about our father. He was such a great man. Would you be interested in working with us? <laughs> so that was kind of a, an, an odd moment, and um, um, and we continued. Um, and so... Um, on that first day, we were just kind of talking in general about ninety uh, percent of the conversation was focused on their father and what a great man he was, and they were telling me how he wanted to liberate Cuba, and that he wanted to uh, actually had a five-year plan, which the uh, his uh, Jose's sister Marta told me about, in which his plan was to uh, leave the entertainment business in five years, move to Miami, run for the U.S. Senate, and his goal was to liberate Cuba from Castro. So the second day of the interview, um, uh, uh, Lyle had left on a red eye at midnight the night before because he had to go to New York where he had bought a, a chicken wing restaurant in Princeton. 
And so I was alone with Eric, and uh, when Eric had been together with Lyle, uh, Lyle was doing 90% of the talking, and when Eric would talk, I noticed that he was kind of looking over at Lyle as if, am I doing okay? Uh, and when I was with Eric alone um, the second day, um, Eric's personality was 180 degrees different, um, and and he was... Um, you know, telling really loving anecdotes. Uh, he was uh, emotional, appropriately emotional. Um, and so at, at one point, about two hours into the three and a half hour that I recorded the interview I did that day, um, I said to him, look, I'm not doing a story about the murder case, but um, I just want to ask you a few questions about, you know, the night you came home and found your parents. And... Um, so, so Eric did answer a few questions. Um, at one point, he, he said to me, uh, here's a quote, he said, I think that possibly if Lyle and I would have been at home, if we would have been able to do something about it, maybe uh, maybe my dad would be alive. Uh, maybe I'd be dead. You know, I mean, I don't know. I wish I definitely would give my life for my dad's. So, you know, these are pretty interesting uh, moments, quotes to me. And I was using a 1990s audio cassette recorder. And right at that, I, I, we had talked about 10 minutes about the uh, night of the murders. And right at that point, the tape ran out on my audio cassette player. And Eric, <laughs> er, Eric was kind of misty eyed. And he said to me, can we, you know, can we stop talking about this? This is really difficult. And, you know, I'm a compassionate <laughs> journalist. And so I said, yeah, don't, don't worry about it. But, but that 10 minutes is, is a really interesting, uh, piece of, um, you know, is a really interesting interview, which I, of course, go into in the book. Yeah. What was your feeling on the two of them, as in their interactions when they were together? And um, did, did you feel like, um, like, did, did, did you have any I- intuition at all that they might have um, been been part of it or any sort of feelings? No. I, I had absolutely no um, reason to be suspicious of them. Uh, the brothers were not suspects publicly in October of 89. Um, I later found out that um, actually the Beverly Hills police received a a phone call from a lawyer about 10 days uh, after the killing of Jose and Kitty, and uh, the lawyer was representing, calling on behalf of the mother of one of of Eric Menendez's friends from Calabasas High, where he had gone the year before the family moved to Beverly Hills. In fact, one interesting uh, uh, factoid, is that the Menendezes had only lived in Beverly Hills for about eight months. They'd been living in Calabasas, which nobody knew what Calabasas was back then, and now we all know about the Kardashians. But uh, if the murders had happened eight months earlier, it would have been the Calabasas murders, and that doesn't quite have the same uh, ring as my cover, <laughs> as my cover story on People magazine in March 1990, uh, Murder in Beverly Hills. So um, the Beverly Hills police got a tip. Uh, from a lawyer who said, you should look at the brothers. And they, they were looking at the brothers w- within t- 10 or 12 days. But none of that was public. So fast forward to um, uh, December of 89. 90. It was two days before my deadline for the Miami Herald uh, magazine story about a 6,000-word feature biography, and uh, their aunt, the brother's aunt, March Cano, had given me the famous family portrait, the foreshot that's been in the media a lot. The two brothers are standing, the two parents are sitting. And she called me up late one afternoon and said, um, you can't use the picture. The brothers were coming out of a bank in Beverly Hills this morning, and somebody walked past them and said, you're next. And, um, you know, that kind of uh, got my attention. So I hung up with her, and I immediately called Les Oler, the lead detective at Beverly Hills Police, and I said, tell me about uh, the death threats these the brothers got this morning. And he said to me, what death threats? And I just, you know, I, I told him, I said, well, I assume, you know, I just found out, you know, from their aunt that they were coming out of the bank. Somebody said, you're next. I, you know, you would assume if your parents are brutally murdered and you get death threats, I think I'd, I'd go running to the police station. So they had, they had not. Um, and two minutes later, or about five minutes later, the aunt called me and was yelling at me and said, why did you call the Beverly Hills police? The brothers did not want them to know about the death threats. 
And I hung up with her and I went into my editor's office, Tom Schroeder, and I said, wow, this, this, this feels a little weird. Uh, and he turned to me and he said, they did it. <laughs> and I, I, I said, no, no, I don't think so. I think so. Again, this is December of 89, the arrest in March of 90. I said, I don't think so. You know, I, I spent time with them, talked to the relatives. Um, but, you know, because <laughs> Tom Schroeder said they, they did it, I called Les Solar back at Beverly police station and started asking some direct questions. And he, of course, would not tell me anything. But between the lines of what he was saying, it was very clear to me that the brothers were the primary suspects. And I, you know, had at, at this point in December of 89, I already knew that it had nothing to do with the home video business, but I, I really had no uh, definite theory on, you know, who the suspects might be. Um, so at the last minute, the day before my article was published, uh, we added two or three paragraphs about that the uh, Beverly Hills police are even looking at the brothers as potential suspects. And it was the first media speculation in any mean, mainstream media that the brothers were under suspicion. Hmm. That must have lost your trust with the brothers right away then. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> Actually not. Because along with, you know, a little information about you know, you know that the Beverly Hills Police have have not, you know, eliminated them as suspects. I had some quotes from their aunt in which she said, uh, you know, we're aware that the Beverly Hills Police are, you know, looking at them, but there's no way that they were involved in this, and the family fully supports them. So, you know, at, like a good journalist, I had both sides of the story. I had the <laughs> police speculation, and I had the family uh, reaction, and so. Um, it, although what, what happened was after I interviewed the brothers in October of 89, um, actually nine days after my interview with Eric Menendez when he's talking, telling me loving, uh, you know, uh, compassionate stories about his parents for three and a half hours. He, nine days after that interview, he went to uh, the therapist, Dr. Jerome O'Seal, and confessed the murders and I always wondered what impact did that have on him you know spending three and a half hours with a reporter uh, you know putting on a uh, facade yeah now that, that that's a really interesting part of the case is the um, the therapist and the relationship that he had with the therapist as well as uh, the girlfriend like that was that was a pretty weird setup, wasn't it? Well, it, it the uh, story of Dr. Jerome Ozeal and his uh, girlfriend, mistress, paramour, uh, whatever you'd like to, uh, you know, whatever word you'd like to use to describe her, uh, could be a book in itself. Um, uh, Dr. Jerome Ozeal was a Beverly Hills. Uh, Psychologist, um, Dr. Ozeal was married to another, uh, therapist, uh, his wife Laurel. They were in practice together. And in the summer of 89, uh, a couple months before, uh, Jose and Kitty Menendez are killed, um, Dr. Ozeal begins a romantic relationship with a woman named Judalon Smith. And, um, so their relationship is, you know, kind of playing out over the next few months. And it's kind of in the background of, uh, of you know, the Menendez brother story. And um, on the on the night that Eric Menendez confessed to Dr. Ozeal, uh, it was Halloween 1989, uh, there's several different versions of what happened that night. There's Dr. Ozeal's version, there is Judalon Smith's version, and Eric and Lyle Menendez each have their own version, which they testified about. Uh, and I've talked to them since then. And according to Dr. Ozeal, uh, Eric Menendez came into his office and was, you know, very uh, distraught and upset. And they went on a walk, uh, you know, to a park a few blocks away in Beverly Hills. And as they were coming back to his office, uh, Eric paused just outside the uh, office building, leaned against a parking meter, and told Dr. Ozeal, we did it. Uh, so... The then they went back upstairs, and, and Dr. Ozeal got him, got him uh, talking. And uh, within about half an hour, Dr. Ozeal said, we need to call your brother Lyle right away. Lyle Menendez was at the Menendez Mansion on North Elm Drive, passing out Halloween candy with his girlfriend. And uh, Dr. Ozeal called him and said, we need you to come over here right away. And, you know, and Lyle Menendez says, what's this about? And Dr. 
Brazil said, well, Eric has told me everything. And Lyle Menendez was, you know, totally freaked out, uh, raced over in his brand new Porsche to, uh, Dr. Roziel's office. And, um, he was very angry with Eric. Um, you know, very upset in general because, you know, suddenly somebody, somebody knew <laughs> that they, they were responsible for their parents' deaths. And so, um, they, uh, stayed and talked for about half an hour, 45 minutes, and then Lyle said, I'm done, you know, I'm leaving, and he grabbed Eric, and they went to the elevator, and, and Dr. Rosier was trying to get them to come back to his office, uh, because he thought this was a very volatile situation, he didn't want them to leave, he, you know, thought, you know, they needed to continue talking to just kind of cool down everything, and, um, as he was getting down the elevator, uh, Lyle Menendez turned to Dr. Roziel, uh, this is according to Dr. Roziel, and said, well, and said, uh, good luck, Dr. Roziel, shook his hand, looked him in the eye, and, uh, Dr. Roziel interpreted that as he was gonna need some good luck. And, uh, the brothers left, um, and this is where the story gets a little murky. Um, Judelon Smith, uh, Dr. Roziel's girlfriend, uh, claims that she was in the waiting room on the night that the Menendez brothers were in the office. And she also claimed that she could hear their confession from down the hall. Um, now, that never happened. Uh, I'm not even sure if she was in the office that night. Uh, that was her story when she was doing a lot of media just after the arrest, when she was on Primetime Live with Diane Sawyer on ABC. Uh, she did an interview with, you know, several interviews with Dominic Dunn for Vanity Fair and, um, you know, spun this whole story. And in the early day, early months after the arrest, you know, she was potentially a really important character because if she actually overheard their convention, she was an extremely important potential prosecution witness. But I'm not sure she was really there. Uh, anyway, that, 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 as I say, that's a whole other uh, crazy story, and 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 just a, one short uh, uh, other fact is that um, after the confession, Doctor Ozeal, um, I believe, just gossiped with his girlfriend, told her about the confession, and then their relationship starts to go sour. Um, and Judelon Smith started threatening to go to the Beverly Hills Police and tell them that the brothers had confessed. And then at one point in December of 80, um, yeah, December of 89, Dr. Ozeal records an hour-long therapy tape uh, and tells the brothers, look, if you ever get arrested, this tape will show that you had remorse. Um, and so at that point, um, the Menendez and Anderson family members believe that Dr. Ozeal was blackmailing the brothers because he scheduled five appointments a week for each of them. And according to testimony that was in the uh, trial, uh, the first trial, um, said to them, I don't care if you ever show up for these therapy sessions, that I'm going to bill your family for them. And the brothers certainly interpreted that as, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, the, you know, these are just, you know, therapy sessions on the books. I don't care if you show up, but I'll be billing your, uh, family for two sessions a day, five days a week. So, at one point, Dr. Roziel, so now that Dr. Roziel's personal life is start spinning even further out of control because uh, Judelon Smith is aware of all this, and she's really making serious threats to go to Beverly Hills Police. So Dr. Roziel and his wife, Laurel, another therapist, moved Judelon Smith into their house with their 8- and 10-year-old daughter in an effort to keep the lid on her. Um, you know, kind of, kind of a strange situation. These two therapists, their own personal lives were really spinning out of control. Um, and then, uh, fast forward to March of 1990, uh, there, there was an incident, incident one day where they came home and Dr. Ozeal, uh, Judelon Smith, uh, uh, apparently, according to Dr. Ozeal's testimony, was talking to his daughters and telling them, I'm going to be your new mommy, your mommy's moving out. So they kicked her out. The next day, Judelon Smith goes to the Beverly Hills Police. The day after that, Lyle Menendez is arrested. Hmm. But, what, but how could they use her testimony uh, as it's pretty secondhand? Right? <laughs> well, uh, parts of it are, are, are secondhand. Um, that, that's why I said just a moment ago that in the early days of after the arrest, she appeared to be, you know, the, you know, Dr. Ozeal was obviously the, you know, would be, it appeared to be that he would be the star prosecution witness. And Judelon Smith was certainly a close number two. It, you know, 
if she had actually overheard their confession. As I, as I said, I don't believe she ever overheard anything because when I did a, uh, I was working on a story for Playboy, a uh, very long, <laughs> 14,000 word story. They told me it was the longest article Playboy ever read because Hef was really into the story. Um, and I interviewed Dr. Ozeal, uh, his first national media interview, um, for that article, which was published in uh, March of 91. And Dr. Ozeal could not talk about the case because the case was, you know, still pending. It was about two years away from trial. And, um, but Judelon Smith had been all over the media bashing Dr. Ozeal. So Dr. Ozeal went out and hired a publicist to screen reporters. And I was the guy who, won, you know, got the brass ring. And that was uh, Dr. Ozeal's first national media interview. So he couldn't talk about the brothers, couldn't talk about the case, but he wanted to bash Judelon Smith as she had been bashing him. So that's why the, their whole story is just, you know, spinning off into uh, a crazy side story uh, of, you know, you know, that intersected with this high profile murder case. Um, and, um, anyway, they're, they're two very interesting yeah. characters. I was going to say now. Now, when when they were in jail too, I guess the whole OJ thing was happening, and uh, um, Eric actually uh, knew OJ in jail, didn't he? Uh, yes. Well, well, um, actually, both brothers. This, this is six degrees of separation. This is you know such a classic uh, LA thing. Actually, it happens everywhere in, in high profile cases. Um, when uh, Eric and La Menendez were uh, young boys. Um, Jose Menendez was head of Hertz Rent-A-Car. And you might remember, if you're old enough, uh, that O.J. Simpson was doing uh, TV commercials for Hertz. I think it was in the, uh, uh, let's see, late 70s, early 80s, in which he was running through airports and jumping over suitcases. And, it, it, I mean, it was a, you know, classic, uh, you know, commercial that was in heavy rotation. And so uh, uh, O.J. actually came to the Menendez home in Princeton one night for dinner. And he met Eric and Lyle Menendez when they were little kids. Wow. So, fast forward to June of 94. Uh, O.J., um, you know, is, is uh, in the Bronco, uh, you know, riding around L.A. with the helicopter chasing him on live TV. And um, about, uh, about 6 or 7 o'clock, the... Uh, um, you know, sheriff's deputies in the jail pulled Eric out of his cell. And Eric was in, both brothers were isolated from the general population because they were high-profile prisoners. And um, the reason they isolate celebrities or high-profile prisoners is that somebody might just want to stab you, you know, and try to become famous themselves. So both brothers were isolated in separate areas of the jail. Uh, so Eric is in a, what's called a pod with about six or eight cells. The sheriff's deputies uh, pull him out of the cell about 6 or 7 o'clock at night on the Friday night of the Bronco chase. They hand him a mop and say, uh, you know, clean up the uh, <laughs> clean up this pod. And uh, Eric had a TV, and so he was watching the Bronco chase. And when they when they pulled him out and handed him the mop, Eric, you know, Eric had a, had a moment in which he said, well, I wonder if uh, they're about to bring O.J. <laughs> into, uh, you know, into my neighborhood uh, of cells. And um, about 10.30 that night, um, they, you know, he heard the, uh, you know, the, the crowd of deputies uh, coming down the hall, and O.J. Simpson walked by his cell in handcuffs, and they placed O.J. in the cell right next to Eric Menendez. Now, O.J. Simpson... Uh, uh, if people can remember before, you know, he was O.J. Simpson, uh, the killer. Uh, O.J. Simpson was a beloved um, football player. He had been an actor in, you know, a couple of Naked Gun movies. He was a football commentator. Everybody loved O.J. back in the days before the, uh, you know, long before the murders. Um, and um, so... Um, O.J. Was, was used to being, you know, kind of buddies with everybody and friendly. And that first night he was doing a lot of talking with the sheriff's deputies. And um, a after, you know, the deputies basically went away for the night, Eric Mendez started whispering to O.J. and telling him, you cannot talk to these deputies. These guys are not your friends. You know, they may be uh, wearing recording devices. 
um, you know, anything you tell them, they're going to report to the uh, prosecutors and the investigators. And um, so what a bizarre situation in that Eric Menendez is giving O.J. Simpson advice on how to survive in jail. I wonder if they talked about the ham dinner that they had back in the day. <laughs> Good well, they they uh, they probably did talk about recognizing each other. I'm sure. Well, I, 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 yeah, actually, my memory is that Eric did uh, tell me that that he uh, you know mentioned something that he had met OJ before, and that OJ probably didn't remember. Uh, but I don't know that for a fact. I'll, I'll have to give OJ a call uh, next week. Yeah, uh, he's but, out uh, looking for the killers <laughs> on the golf course. Right. Well, you, you know, funny you mentioned that. I was just um, uh, a couple weeks ago. I just happened to take a look at um, the um, about an hour after the OJ verdict was announced, which was October second. Uh, I think it was October second or third, uh, nineteen ninety-five. Um, OJ's uh, son Jason, along with his mother and sister and some other family members were having a news conference uh, in the courtroom where the trial had taken place, where the verdict was announced, and Jason Simpson read a statement from O.J. in which he said, you know, my father is going to devote his life to looking for the real killer. And um, I, I just stumbled across it a, a couple weeks ago, and, and, and that was kind of fascinating, too. You, you know, because I knew in the back of my head, but to actually see the video uh, is kind of fascinating. But uh, so 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 yeah so so right the the inter you know six degrees of separation Eric and Lyle I'm I'm sorry Eric and OJ are in cells next to each other and um, you know Eric they they couldn't actually see each other because their cells are right next to each other but they could kind of whisper that you know between each other and sometimes they would uh, pass letters back and forth when one or the other was being taken uh, you know to the showers. Oh, maybe someone dropped the soap. Oh, wow. Well. But <laughs> boom. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, I'll be quiet. Um, well, no, no, okay, so now one of the biggest things in this, the whole case, the first one in the second trial, um, was about the uh, sexual abuse. And they used a lot of that in the first trial, and they didn't in the second, and they weren't able to. Um, you have um, yeah, brought up a, a letter that happened between. Uh, Eric's cousin and uh, I believe Andy Cano and himself uh, mentioning the abuse that you know before the murder. So now, now you say that was never used in the trial. So uh, how did how did it come out and how did well, you get it? Uh, j let me just say a couple uh, things quickly in in general. The um the first minute of this trial uh, was a media sensation. It was carried live on a brand new cable channel called Court TV, gavel to gavel all day from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., and then Court TV ran a three-hour highlight show at night called Primetime Justice. So people in the U.S. and all over the world were following this trial like a novella. The general public was kind of stuck on, uh, well, first of all, the, the um, mainstream media uh, adopted or signed on to uh, a logline on the trial, Greedy Rich Kids Kill Ozzy and Harriet on a Sunday night in Beverly Hills. Now, there were three years between the trial and the, uh, I'm sorry, the rest of the brothers in the trial because, uh, there was an issue with the therapist, uh, who had, you know, recorded this audio tape uh, confession with the brothers and also had other information. And normally you have a, you know, have a privilege with your therapist in which whatever you tell that therapist is privilege. There's one exception to the privilege, which is if you threaten your therapist or if you tell your therapist, I'm going to kill my girlfriend or boyfriend tomorrow, the therapist is obligated to go to law enforcement and to tell people that might be in danger. So the general public was, was kind of caught up on, caught up in, um, um, well, and, and the defense made, so for three years, the only story the public heard was the uh, PR people from the L.A. County DA's office putting out the spin, Greedy Rich Kids, Gilazi and Harriet. And the job of those PR people at the DA's office is to poison the potential jury pool and uh, in a high-profile trial. And, uh, you know, sorry to say that, but that's what they do. So the general public 
uh, you know, that, that was the only story they heard for three years. And two weeks before the trial, the defense went public and said, you know, no, we have a completely different story. This is a story of uh, intergenerational sexual abuse. And, uh, you know, the brothers were, you know, we have eyewitnesses to physical, verbal, and emotional abuse. Uh, the brothers are going to tell you about how they were sexually molested. And the general public was hung up on the idea of, the general public thought this trial was, we were sexually molested, so therefore we get a free pass to kill mom and dad. And that was not the defense. But that was the image that the general public had. So um, the uh, now to get back to uh, this letter that was uh, one of my scoops in the book, um, I did not see this letter, uh, for the complete letter, until March of 2018, a few months before um, uh, the final deadline of my book. Um, the first Menendez trial was 93-94. Second Menendez trial was 95-96. First trial ended in two hung juries, a mistrial. Then they were retried, uh, and uh, the judge reversed most of his evidence rulings. The second trial jury heard a completely different set of evidence. The defense was not allowed to put on the heart of their defense from the first trial, and the brothers were convicted of first-degree murder. Uh, so... The, as I said, there were 65 defense witnesses in the first trial, uh, people that were eyewitnesses to physical, verbal, and emotional abuse. And from my perspective, that can be just as damaging to a, a young child as sexual molestation. Um, so the, the molestation was not my sole criteria for evaluating the case. But I believe the Menendez brothers, not just because they testified, that they were molested. But over 30 years, I have spent a lot of time with Jose Menendez's sister and with Kitty Menendez's sister. And um, everybody in the family knew something was, was off, something was weird. But Jose was kind of the rich uncle in the family. He loaned your kids, he, he loaned you money if you needed a loan. He got your kids their first job. So nobody wanted to upset the rich uncle. And also, nobody in the family, everybody, you know, saw bits and pieces of some strange behavior, but um, nobody sat the entire family down together in one room until after uh, the brothers were arrested for murder. Um, so, um, as I said, I, I have, you know, in 30 years of reporting, and this is the luxury of a book author, is that you can go so deep into the story and interview hundreds of people and you're not on a daily deadline that I feel confident that I really that I really know what what happened in this case and I believe the resolution of the uh, first trial should have been manslaughter not murder half of the jurors all the women voted for manslaughter all the men voted for uh, murder all the men I interviewed all the jurors after the first trial all the men told me a father would never do that to his sons now, this was 1994, uh, long before the Me Too, the Men Too movements, long before the Catholic Church abuse. Um, so there, there, I, I, I believe that if, if the Menendez trial were held today, it would be a completely different outcome. Um, so now, now I'll answer your question. <laughs> so I, I, I'm, I'm trying to give a background before we get to this letter. So. I find I'm, I'm visiting uh, Marta Cano, my longtime source, going back to September '89, in uh, March of 2018, and we're going. She thought she had told me over the years that she thought that there might be, she might have some letters uh, that Eric Menendez had written to her her son when they were 15 and, and 17, and her, her son tragically passed away in uh, 2003. Uh, he was only uh, I think around 28. 29 years old um, but so we started going through his papers that she had never gone through um, and um, we found uh, within an hour we found a letter a handwritten letter from Eric Menendez written to Andy Cano and um, in the letter um, it starts out where Eric is just kind of writing about some routine stuff. And the, the letter was not in an envelope, so, you know, there's no postmark, you know, that can document specifically when it was written. But the content of the letter authenticates when it was written because one of the first things uh, Eric writes about is a Christmas party that the family had at the Beverly Hills Mansion for all the employees at Live Entertainment. And he writes details about uh, a giant Christmas tree that his mother bought and 
you know, a ice cream sundae bar that they have the party. And I knew about this party independently. And he also writes about uh, the brothers had just hired a new tennis coach, Mark Heffernan. And I, I knew independently that had happened in November of 88. So um, the letter's kind of routinely going along about, you know, kind of routine stuff. And at one point in the letter, Eric uh, writes a paragraph about that he's... Uh, you know that his mother is uh, kind of out of it, and he's he's really worried about her. Um, and then um, a few sentences later, uh, I'll read you a, a, a couple sentences that he wrote, in which he said, "I've been trying to avoid Dad. It's still happening, Andy, but it's worse for me now. I can't explain it. He's so overweight that I can't stand to see him. I never know when it's going to happen, and it's driving me crazy." Every night I stay up thinking he might come in. I need to put it out of my mind. I know what you said before, but I'm afraid. You just don't know Dad like I do. He's crazy. He's warned me a hundred times about telling anyone. So I, when I hit that point in the letter, I was reading it out loud to Marta Cano, and she became emotional. And, and I'm like, you know, my jaw has dropped. And um, I... Within uh, 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 half an hour or 45 minutes, I called um, the brother's appeal attorney who's based in uh, Berkeley and uh, told him about the letter and started reading him some sections. And um, obviously he knows the case extremely well because he handled the brother's appeals in state court and uh, in federal court in the Ninth Circuit, and they were turned down on their last appeal in 2005, so that's the end of the road. The only way you can reopen an appeal is if you have new evidence, and, um, you know, the light bulb went off in my head, well, this is new evidence, uh, and potentially significant new evidence. So um, that is the general background uh, about this uh, letter, and uh, it is now... Um, I actually hand-carried it from West Palm Beach to Berkeley because I knew it was, you know, of such major significance. I didn't want to send it FedEx and have it get lost. So I, I hand-carried it to Berkeley. Uh, the attorney uh, took possession of it, and he has since, uh, you know, sent it to, uh, you know, the handwriting experts can analyze the ink, can analyze the paper, and, 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 and I'm told that they can, uh, you know, pinpoint the... Uh, you know, within within a couple months of uh, when that letter was written. Well, what do you think the difference it would make if if they could prove the sexual assault in, in a trial? Do you think it would just lighten the sentence? Well, uh, two things. Uh, people that are uh, sexually molesting children typically don't invite, you know, somebody in to watch, uh, or they don't videotape. Uh, you know, them molesting their, you know, their kid or, or whoever. Um, so, you know, there will never be, <laughs> you know, you know, concrete evidence. Um, but there, to from my perspective, uh, you know, thirty years of reporting, hundreds of interviews. Uh, I was in each six-month trial every day listening to testimony, um, there's an overwhelming amount of mitigating evidence uh, that I believe uh, should, you know, that the trial, as I said a moment ago, should have been a manslaughter resolution, not a murder. A manslaughter would have sent them to jail for about 22 to 25 years. They've been in jail for uh, 29 years and uh, about eight months. Um, the 30-year anniversary of their arrest is, is coming up in March of, uh, uh, um, March of 2020. Um, so uh, the, the um, you know I, I I hope that they will file a new appeal. Uh, as I mentioned, the threshold for filing a new appeal when you've exhausted all your appeals is you have to have new evidence. Um, now, this letter is potentially a significant piece of new evidence. There is actually additional new evidence. I'm, I am still, this is the most incredible thing, I am still actively reporting on this case. Uh, I mean, I am working on <laughs> a bunch of other things, uh, including a new book unrelated to Menendez, but... Um, the, I, I am actively doing reporting, and, and I think he's going to develop uh, some other significant evidence. And so um, the best outcome, uh, you file an appeal, and you have to show the court that you have new evidence. And the best outcome of that filing is that you're granted a hearing 
to consider your request uh, uh, for the appeal. And the best outcome, what you're asking for is you're asking for a court to grant you a new trial. So try to wrap your head around the idea of a third Menendez trial in the social media world of 2020, 2021, and uh, that, you know, I mean, you know, OJ was pretty insane, and that was 1995, so just imagine a new Menendez trial, Um, and um, thanks to uh, NBC and Dick Wolf, they uh, produced an eight-hour limited series called Law and Order, True Crime, The Menendez Murders, and that aired in uh, September of 2017, premiered. And it is still streaming on all major platforms. Stars Edie Falco, who was nominated for an Emmy for playing Leslie Abramson, the brother's uh, defense attorney. And um, so a fascinating thing to me, an entire new generation was introduced to the Menendez brothers uh, case uh, in through the NBC series. And every day more people are streaming it and discovering the case. Um, so... The interesting thing that happened after the NBC series aired for eight weeks was that social media just went really crazy and noisy and was totally sympathetic to the brothers because that was the point of view of the series. And my my book, The Menendez Murders, provided the primary source material for the series. And my point of view, as you've been hearing me uh, ramble on for a while uh, since we've been talking today, is that... Um, you know, this was a manslaughter, this was not a murder, and um, that the brothers really were abused, and this mitigating evidence of the family history, um, you know, should have, uh, you know, was the uh, uh, evidence that should have led to a manslaughter resolution. But what about what about the killing of Kitty, their mother? Wouldn't that still be murder because uh, the father was abusing, but the mother, you know, I mean, I'm sure she... I guess she knew about it, and that seemed to be the the the, the general idea. But um, to actually kill her, wouldn't that be still murder? That's a great question. The number one question people ask me is, Eric and Lyle Menendez were 18 and 21 years old. Why didn't they just walk out the front door? And that's easy to say if you're thinking of them through the perspective of a normal 18 or 21-year-old. But the uh, therapy experts, the defense uh, therapists that evaluated them, told me that their emotional maturity was somewhere between 8 and 10 years old. They couldn't imagine life without their parents. So even though a normal person, you know, it's easy to, you know, just, you know, logically say, well, they would just walk out the door. Uh, the brothers couldn't imagine walking out the door. The second uh, question that people ask me the most is, okay, I'm, I might be willing to accept that Jose Menendez was a monster, but what about their mother? You know, Kitty Menendez was a mother, and we all, you know, believe the, you know, the general stereotypes that mothers are supposed to be nurturing and caring and loving, and unfortunately, not all mothers are. Um, Kitty Menendez was an alcoholic. Uh, she had issues with prescription pills, and um, the brothers testified that um, there were a series of confrontations in the days before the murders, and in one of them, um, Kitty Menendez told the brothers, uh, you know, they were, they were talking to her, you know, about the, the abuse, and she said, I've known, according to her testimony, she said, I've known all along, do you think I'm stupid? And... Um, that was, you know, that was a crushing uh, piece of information for the brothers, the idea that, uh, that their mother knew and didn't do anything to protect them. So, um, of course, Kenny Menendez didn't deserve to die, and, and neither did Jose Menendez. Uh, um, and as I said a few moments ago, nothing gives you a free pass to kill mom and dad. But um, the, the, these were two dysfunctional parents, and they raised two troubled sons, and everything ended in this terrible tragedy. And in the um, second trial, one of the major differences from the first trial was at the last uh, moment, at the very end of the trial, uh, before it went to the jury, before the case went to the jury, the judge changed his instructions to the jury, and he would not allow the defense attorneys to argue that the uh, murder of Kitty Menendez was a manslaughter. He, the judge said there was, and Lyle Menendez didn't testify at the second trial, 
Eric Menendez tried to carry the ball for both brothers. And um, so the judge said, I'm not going to let you, uh, you know, argue manslaughter for Kitty Menendez because I haven't heard any evidence uh, about Kitty Menendez. So there, and then the defense made the mistake of assuming that, you know, he, he had give, allowed them to use this imperfect self-defense instruction on Kitty Menendez in the first trial. They assumed that they were going to be able to do that in the second trial. And that was a really critical, uh, you know, kind of death blow for the defense uh, that, you know, they, they were, uh, you know, surprised by, caught off guard. Um, and um, so that was a key factor in the brothers being convicted in the second trial. And then after they were convicted of first-degree murder in March of 96, uh, there was a uh, second segment of the trial called the penalty phase in which the jury had to decide between the death penalty or life without parole. And uh, during that three-week penalty phase, the jurors heard all of that family history that the, the judge had kept out most of it in the second trial, the family history that was the heart of the defense in the first trial. So the jurors voted for life without parole after three weeks. I interviewed all the jurors, and three or four of them told me after the second trial, if they had heard that family history in the guilt phase, they would not have voted for murder. So... Some people have said, there's the fix. Uh, and in the final brother's appeal in front of the Ninth Circuit in 2005, one of the justices, Alex Kaczynski, actually said uh, in the hearing, I have an audio tape of it, and he said that he believed there had been collusion between the L.A. County DA's office and Judge Stanley Weisberg to convict the Menendez brothers in the second trial. But even though he said that, Justice Kaczynski still voted against the appeal. But... Um, Anyway, it's a, it's a really interesting case. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Um, and now, do you have a website that people can come and find you on and uh, pass on information? I do. Uh, it is uh, easy to remember, MenendezMurders.com. Wow. Wow. <laughs> That's it. Well, we're going to have thank that you. posted uh, along with your book, The Menendez Murders. Uh, thank you for talking with us about your book and about the research in, in the case. Hey, um, guys, Robert, thanks so much for having me on. Thanks, Robert. It was fantastic. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. The end! By George, he's got it! It is the end! I'll say it! You're lying to me. I'll be back. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. 